was thinking, I was listening to Blind Boy, and um, I thought some of our bonus content could be like I could read a story that I wrote, oh, yeah. or you could read something you wrote, yeah. and we could okay. just talk about it. That would be you great. Know? Oh, I'd love to That'd do that. That'd be fun, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you listen okay. to his most recent thing? His most recent episode is he reads an entire short story from his new I book. I haven't. I gave up before he started to read the short story. It, you should really listen to it. It's really, it's brilliant. It's good. It's brilliant. Okay, and it's really, it's it. a very sad. It's really heartbreaking story. Yeah. You know what I thought was really funny was. Um, he starts off by talking that he's not being included in the Irish Podcast Awards. Yes, yeah. And it's really like, I would never think for a second about <laughs> Irish podcasts if it wasn't for Blind Boy. Nobody else outside of Ireland knew there was such a thing. And they're not having him in the awards. Exactly. It reminded me of a really funny tweet where someone said that Bach, J.S. Bach, yeah. was a member of the German Counterpoint Society. <laughs> and it's like, he was a member of it? <laughs> who, who was the president? Well, good. Who was, <laughs> well, they accepted him as as a member. Well, that's nice. <laughs> good, good on the German Counterpart Society. There's um, something in okay. Kierkegaard's journals where he says something like, "Maybe he's the most famous philosopher in Denmark," and then he says, "That sounds like a joke." <laughs> well, he was right on both counts. He was, and it does sound like a joke. Um, okay. Okay. Let's start talking. Okay. Um, although I don't know if any of this is entertaining, you can put it in. Um, yeah. Okay. So, you introduce us. Okay. Hello, everybody. This is Terrifying Questions. I'm Taylor Carman, a philosophy professor at Columbia University Barnard College, uh, working on European philosophy. And um, Terrifying Questions is the name of the podcast, and the subtitle is And How Not to Be Terrified by Them. Yeah. And I'm Eric Kaplan, and uh, I'm a writer, and I'm sort of officially back to work now because now the writing and the acting strikes have both been resolved. Yeah. Um, and I, I also have a PhD in philosophy. All right. So we are kind of winging this one uh, ad lib, but I think our terrifying question is, is revenge or is vengeance inevitable? Right. Is vengeance inevitable? Yeah. Um, are we doomed yeah. to cycles of revenge? This is topical, right. but we're not going to be getting into the weeds about the politics. We're just thinking about it is topical. vengeance and retaliation and hitting back and striking back. It's an ancient, ancient theme in human history and human thought. It seems like a perennial problem, and it seems like we don't really get out of it. So it's like here's a pessimistic hypothesis, which is we're sort of doomed to be constantly pulled back into cycles of revenge. Right, right. And what do you think about the argument that revenge is a good idea because it does uh, reputation building? <laughs> uh, for the for the Avenger to build up? For the victim, yeah. Oh. In other words, mm -hmm. if, if, if you keep slapping me yeah. and I never slap you back, uh. I'm going to get a reputation as someone who people can abuse. Uh -huh. And that will be bad for me and for everyone who cares about me and who I care about. Because people will be like, well, we could go to the store and buy a donut, but let's just take one of Eric's donuts. That'll be cheaper. Right. And we know from the fact that when you slap him, he doesn't slap you back, that he won't do anything about it. Yeah. So if I want to keep my donuts safe, then if you slap me, I had better slap you back. There's something to Otherwise, that. Otherwise, I'll get a reputation as a sucker. Absolutely. I mean, revenge has its roots in something that's very necessary and... Uh, good, which is uh, you shouldn't be pushed around. You should defend yourself. That's what we're hearing a lot of nowadays. We've got a right to defend ourselves. Yeah, you push back. I mean, I think some people would even say you've got a moral duty to yourself to do that, to preserve your dignity and defend your rights. And if you just let yourself be pushed around and bullied and victimized, you're actually setting a bad example for other people. They'll think that they have to roll over and let this happen to them. Right. So, and a bad example for the abusers, because they're like, well, that's the best thing to do. Just abuse people. They'll roll over. 
Yeah, exactly right. So Which I think is bad for their souls. Bad for their <laughs> yeah, souls. Yeah, you're maybe listeners. doing them a favor bad by for their souls. teaching yes. them that they can't do that. And that's right. I mean, that seems right. Now, the problem is how much do you push back, right? I mean, the thing about retaliation and revenge is that they tend to be excessive. Uh-huh. So I think there's a real issue about like, yeah, there's a tendency to sort of, if you hit me once, I'm going to hit you two, two times or three times, and that'll show you. Maybe that's what you need to learn the lesson. In other words, these things tend to escalate. And they tend to Mm -hmm. spiral out of control, and that's the real danger. And again, as ancient as that is, there's a very ancient wisdom in the Hammurabi Code, which appears also in the uh, Hebrew Bible and in many traditions. And it may be that it appears in so many traditions that it's hardwired, maybe an idea of justice, which is proportionality. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth— People often quote that slogan as if it's a sign of a primitive kind of conception of justice, that you gouge out somebody's eye if they take your eye. But the wisdom of it is that it's an eye for an eye, not two eyes or a whole head or something like that. It's it's, right, it's, right. it's, it's actually a big leap forward from the instinctive urge to hit back twice as hard as you got hit. So it's actually, I think, really wise. It's not the last word. But, and, and by the way, I, I do think a... An Assyrological footnote is, I think, yeah. in the actual Code of Hammurabi, what that meant was uh, you have to pay an amount of money uh-huh. equal to the loss of an eye, not uh. you take out your fork and take out the other person's <laughs> eye. Well, that but, would even be uh, more humane. And Yeah, those yeah. of our listeners who may know more about Assyrology, please write in and correct me, but I think that's right. But And I know just about nothing about the Hammurabi Code, except that this other bit of it, when I was talking to some people a while ago about whether there's been moral progress in human history, mm-hmm. and I was kind of making the case that at least you, it's not obvious that there has been. Mm-hmm. And one bit of evidence uh, for on my side is there's another famous line from the Hammurabi Code which says what's very important is justice for widows and orphans. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. wow, a lot of our politicians could learn from that, you know? A little, yes, for the Republican primary, exactly. Hammurabi exactly. would be would be more right. <laughs> morally advanced. Rush up on your Hammurabi before the next yeah. debate and learn something about compassion for the vulnerable, the poor, yeah. orphans, widows. I mean, that's was said thousands and thousands of years ago and ought to be reiterated. So, yeah, I didn't mean to say that uh, gouging out an eye for an eye and chopping off a hand for a theft is the way to go, but it's a step forward from cycles of retaliation. Kill the guy. Yeah, and, right. and I'll, hit me and I'll kill your family kind of thinking right so okay so so your major beef with revenge is it disproportionate yeah and self-perpetuating and leading to further suffering and disaster because it leads us into the well certainly from disproportionate you will expect endless escalation right that's right yeah and another good ancient source to think about uh, with regard to this is Aeschylus's Oresteia which is all about this terribly dysfunctional family in which the father kills the daughter and then the wife the queen kills the husband who's the king and then Orestes has to kill his mother well that's not disproportionate is it that seems to be a life for a life uh th- good point good point but it is apparently perpetual and maybe never ending now why is that Maybe there's something about even yeah. proportionate revenge, uh-huh. which is not great. Maybe. Interesting. Well, that's right. Uh, good point. Yeah. In other words, this is our question. How do you get out of this? So you've made a very good distinction. That's right. Even if it could be proportionate, it looks like it might be endless. 
endless hitting back and hitting back and hitting back and hitting. In other words, endless war. Right. So how do you get out of it? And I want to stress, too, that I think uh, the reason to be very perplexed and disturbed about this is, like we said at the beginning, it looks like it grows out of something right and just, which is that you don't let yourself be victimized. The respectable term for this kind of, as it were, hitting back (laughs) is retribution. And retribution is not supposed to be the same thing as retaliation. So retribution... I'm going to make another distinction, Yeah, which is I think frequently when we emotionally feel like doing revenge, it's because we feel we have been hurt, but not necessarily that we feel we have been wronged. I'll give you an example. Supposing I'm trying to get a job as a comedy writer and I submit my sample and another writer submits his sample and he gets the job and I don't. And I'm really mad. And then the the showrunner who didn't give me the job a couple years from now, the shoe's on the other foot, and he applies for a job from me. And I say no. Uh-huh. And yeah. the reason I say yeah. no is not because I was wronged. It's payback. It's not actually that I think the other... Exactly, it's payback. It's not that I think the other person was less qualified than I am. Uh-huh. It just feels good. Uh, yes. Well, we, um, we may need to distinguish... And I'm not saying I do that, but I want to cop to the impulse in the interest of, of psychology. We all know the feeling. accuracy. And I think also your story captures what people mean when they say revenge is a dish best served cold. It's almost more gratifying if there's a pause and then you can sort of, you know, get back at them in a way that doesn't look impulsive or unthinking, but looks like very carefully considered. It's very sadistic. But here, I think we might need three distinctions. I mean, yeah, it, more distinctions. More, more distinctions. distinctions. So when you said you've just been injured, right, or hurt rather than wronged, yeah, that, that seems to me not quite right because I can be playing soccer with a bunch of people and the other person runs into me and I get injured. I've been injured by them. I haven't been wronged, but I don't feel any impulse to get back at them for that. So there's another kind of injury that I think we, we need to distinguish. That's the one you're describing. Voluntary. Yeah, that's right. The, well, the person has chosen to hurt me. But there's a kind of wrong there, even if we want to say, like in your example, that I don't think that person did anything wrong. Um, they weren't breaking the rules. I, I don't have the law on my side. I don't. I can't really complain that they were being vicious or had bad intentions, I, but I still resent it. So I think the right. the presence of resentment is crucial to your example. Whereas right. if I just and, get and I injured feel like in a soccer game, I don't I resent it. I feel resentment is a desire to raise the price on people choosing to hurt me. Whether or not it was right or wrong for them to hurt me. That's right. You know? But I'm, I think also there's an egoistic part of this, which is uh, even though I don't think it was unjust by any objective standard, I do feel like my dignity was sort of harmed. It wasn't just my body or my right. or anything like that. It wasn't like the soccer injury. It wasn't even just that I didn't get the money I wanted to make on this or an opportunity or something. It's, it's made me feel less than. Exactly. It's made me feel less than and humiliated. So there's a um, there's a kind of wrong there that's an injury to my pride yeah. or my sense of um, entitlement or something like that. So that's we're getting closer into the sort of ethical domain. But I think the thing that makes the revenge or the payback, uh, whatever it is we want to call it in this case, kind of gratifying is that I get the satisfaction of feeling like I've gotten a kind of justice, even though I know I don't really deserve recognition of 
justice at an objective level. I guess I feel like I'm getting the satisfaction of letting people feel yeah. that Eric is not a man to be fucked with. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Like yeah. I'm setting myself up as a big man. Exactly. In my community of people who pay attention to me. Yeah, that's right. And that's it's definitely satisfying. It's satisfying to your pride. And that's yes. and I don't say that in a bad way. I mean, it's all we have to have some self-respect. And so self-respect, dignity, pride, those are kicking in. And we all know those can kick in way before people are thinking very objectively about justice and what's really right. I feel it law. kicks in for me in an in an animalistic way. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Although other, it's, I doubt other animals have quite this thing, but they've maybe got a primitive version of it. Yeah, that uh, they're going to protect themselves or protect their young or their home or their territory. Yeah, it's very instinctive. So, so that makes me think, like, I'm not in favor of revenge. I, right. Like I gave right. a, a self a revealing thing about impulses, but I don't like give way to those impulses or I try not to. Right. Um, and, and a part of it is I do think um, I think it was the Buddha or some other sage person who said that uh, it's anger is a knife that cuts you as bad as it cuts the person who you're That's so wielding true. it against. That is so and true. And I do think that in those times in my life where I am given over to resentment, I haven't been flourishing. Right. <laughs> like, like it's not the it's the not the kinds of periods of my life that I look back on with fondness when I'm eating up with resentment. That's the interesting thing about the psychology of it, though, is that it's painful and satisfying at the same time. And I think that's part of the experience of it. It's not gratifying. Right. Like that's something... weird. How can there be an emotion that's painful and satisfying at the same time? It's almost like, you know, it's sort of like one more ancient reference here, Medea, you know, who gets her revenge on Jason by killing their children, which are her children. Right. And it's like she's, I think we're supposed to think this is not just, she's not just a completely lunatic psychopath who doesn't feel anything she feels like she is she's willing to pay this price in order to get back at him right and so she feels it on you know it's a double-edged sword but she's so intent on hurting him that she's gonna suffer this herself and there's a little bit of that in this kind of scenario you're describing which is when you get the satisfaction it stings so now, yeah, I guess that just means that's how committed we are to protecting our pride. Mm -hmm. So here's what I think is scary, is that it's so instinctive. It's so deeply rooted, maybe in something like human nature, that the question is how to get out of it. I completely agree with you. Nietzsche agrees with us. Many people have said overcoming revenge is a great moral achievement if we can manage it. And then the question is, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you right. how do you satisfy these basic instincts, which we could probably never get rid of, and yet not just succumb to perpetual cycles of vengeance and retaliation? I've, I have a proposal. Uh huh. So my proposal is like I view resentment as a self protective. Yeah. I guess I view the ego as a self protective psychological mechanism. Right. Um. And I view resentment as a a sort of very base and primitive manifestation of me versus the world thinking. So in reality, the really dangerous situations are not person versus person revenge, because those have been pretty well taken care of by the justice system, you right. know, more or less. I mean, right, right. we hear about, you know, Elon Musk and and Zuckerberg yeah. <laughs> threatening to engage in, in fisticuffs. Yeah. And, and who cares, really? <laughs> right. It's just if that may be their form of tax paying back 
yeah. the rest of us in entertainment <laughs> um, for the money that they have. That's so right. Just sell tickets to it. Person yeah, versus yeah. person revenge doesn't seem to be such a huge problem in our society. But community versus community revenge. Yeah. Oh, boy, that might be one of the biggest problems <laughs> on the planet right now. That's for sure. And my feeling is whenever there's a community versus community situation of ongoing conflict, there are people who stand to get money and power through pushing the revenge narrative. Yes. And good, I think good. what we ought to do is become afraid of and resentful of them. Right. That's good. <laughs> so, right. So, yeah. So my suggestion yeah. is like, if let's say, uh, you know, not to talk about, you know, Pride Arishio Precox, not to talk about the situation that everyone is thinking about right now. But mm -hmm. if the, um, if there's a huge fight between the philosophy professors and the literature professors at Barnard <laughs> and the head of the philosophy department is saying, don't you realize they're humiliating us? Mm -hmm. And the head of the literature department <laughs> is saying, don't you realize those philosophers are humiliating us? Uh -huh. That what really ought to be done is the people of goodwill in each department ought to say, our department chairmans yeah. are egging us on for their own benefit. Right. And right. we shouldn't let them do that. Right. I mean, <laughs> that is an insult to our pride. I just pointed to my chest. That is an insult to our pride. That's a good point. And it actually applies to international affairs when you realize how many people are cynically profiting from the escalation of violence. You know, people who are selling arms and building bombs yeah. and making a good living. And or making they're a... the head of their own country and they're doing such a bad job at it. The only way they can get people to support them is to rally around the flag. Like, exactly. Let's say, for example, they've been convicted of bribery. Yeah. <laughs> <And their laughs> Just to stop, take a hypothetical. Yeah, their next, yeah. their <laughs> next stop is jail. Uh, <laughs> so they're like, yeah. oh, no, we all need to engage in a communal cycle of revenge. Right. Um, That's a good point. So it's not as if all of this is just bubbling up from instinct and therefore we have to look at it at that individual almost biological level it's there's a lot of really cynical psychopathic profiting from the escalation of violence and the proliferation of retaliation right and there's a lot of people who instead of dealing with their own feelings of anxiety and fear and I don't know, anger in their personal lives, choose to become emotionally invested in a community's cycle of revenge. Yeah. And yeah. and I'd like to figure it kind of reminds me of Socrates's discussion of the internal tyrant. Mm, mm. You know, and sometimes you hear, I don't know if it's real, but you hear it mm. on the internet that there are two wolves inside you, one that loves and one that revenges, and the one that will win is the one that you feed. Um, so hmm. you've never heard that one? Is this Socrates? No, that oh. is. This oh. is just the internet. Oh, I, was I think say. it's been, it's been <laughs> attributed to a Native American wise man. I see. I, I've never tracked it down. Okay. Maybe it is a Native American wise man. Okay, but they have the same. Yeah, they have the same structure. Good, which is that they say the the desire for revenge. Mm -hmm is something that's within us, yeah. but it might not necessarily be our friend. Right. And therefore, we should be aware of of giving it free reign. I think that's right. right. Well, that is a very platonic way of talking. That's right. Socrates, mm. Plato, this, uh, the, um, uh, really, it's the spirited part of the soul or this these horses of the, on the chariot. You're sort of riding the chariot and there's a horse that you have to mm -hmm. constantly keep in check and pull. That's There's something right about that. There's this inner conflict that we do have some control over this 
thing. And it is like a wild animal. You can let it go free. And the problem then is it builds up momentum. I mean, it's like a badly behaved dog. All these TV shows about how to get your dog to behave. It can get so How do you get your dog to behave? I don't know how they do it. It's the dog whisperer kind of thing. You have to, well, yeah, you have to be, I mean, I guess the bottom line of that wisdom is you have to be firm and authoritarian and bossy, which goes against your moral instincts. But dogs like this because dogs are pack animals and you're the alpha, yada, yada, yada. I don't know how true that is, but it's something like that. You can't, you can't treat your dog as an equal with equal moral standing and respect because then they'll just because they don't know what that means and they'll be peeing on the sofa and no and we can't have that yeah you can't have it so you can't do we it can't so have so there's part of you that's like that and mm-hmm. um I think the Baja boys ask the question who let the dogs out and and we need to not let them out and we need to put them back in so whoever said good wolf bad wolf or good horse bad horse thing in your soul the thing that's right about that or another way to maybe articulate that is to say the revenge attitude is very backwards looking i'm obsessed with the injury or the wrong i've suffered and i want to get some kind of really primal satisfaction out of correcting that or paying back or whatever and you can nurse this kind of resentment and anger by being obsessed with the past and one way of turning around and taking up a different gestalt on the situation is to take something like a more a forward-looking attitude. Like, where do we go from here? Where How are, right. are we going to get out of this? What's the way forward? Um, how are we going to live together? Under what conditions? And that's going to require letting go of some of the past, being able to forget or forgive or accept reparation or accept some kind of legal decision or verdict that we can move on. That's how the Oresteia ends very happily when the jury is deciding Orestes' fate is split and Athena has to cast the deciding vote. And now the Furies, who are the underground female deities who are crying for revenge for the killing of the mother because they protect blood relations. And they are screaming and irrational and Athena has to talk them down from this and tell them what she says to them is, you are goddesses and we're going to rename you the Eumenides, which means the kindly ones. Uh And after a few pages where they're just repeating in this chanting like we'll never let this go we're never going to let this go we're never going to forget it and finally they listen to Athena and Athena says I'll give you a special place where you'll be worshipped and they finally say oh really you would do this for us and then their anger they say I feel my anger slipping away this is the most beautiful thing ever written I think it's just absolutely great moment in literature and they let it go and this war ends and this Anger, this fury, which is blinding and irrational, gives way to a kind of sense of restored status and dignity that they are genuine deities and goddesses, different from the Olympian gods, but they will have their place in the, it's not exactly the pantheon, but something like that, and they'll be worshipped. Anyway, so uh, that's all magical and beautiful, and um, yeah, it's got to be some kind of transformation of attitude that turns you around like 180 degrees from looking at the past and chewing over this injury and looking to the future and figuring out what the future is going to look like. It's easy to say that and it's harder to do. But what I guess I want to say is I don't think there's any formula for this. There's no recipe. There's no algorithm for it. Right. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. Well, one thing Aeschylus teaches us, and yeah. thanks Aeschylus, like, <laughs> is we don't want to be furious at our own fury, uh-huh, right? Yeah. 
will almost right. enter into a cycle, an internal cycle yes. of self-punishment ah, and self-abnegation. Very good. And that won't work. That's exactly right, because it's Athena who's calmly talking them down from their anger. And, and it's not Apollo, who's on the side of the Olympian gods, who are saying, as Apollo has been saying to the Furies, you're being irrational and you don't understand the law and be quiet and you're nothing. Because mm-hmm. that was throwing gas on the fire and making everything worse. It's Athena who steps in and can say to them, your goddesses, you're worthy of respect. Now, wh- why is that? Because wh- wh- they're both Olympian gods. In fact, yeah. they're brother and sister. They are. Why does she have the silver tongue in this situation? Um, good question. I think part of it is that she's female. Because they're girls? Well, yes. Okay, interesting. I do think that's part of it. Girl but, power? But Athena is a very masculinized female goddess. She's always pictured with a spear and a war helmet. And what she says when she decides the vote in favor of Orestes, of acquitting him uh-huh. and saying he's not guilty, which is why the Furies are furious. Mm-hmm. But what she and she says, I always side with the men. So, yeah, she is on that side. But siding with the men, she takes this step over to the side of being able to talk to the Furies. And I says, I say, talk them down from their anger. So how she does that, uh, she's just very wise. <laughs> yeah, well, be wise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm putting this back in my example. Uh, I'm thinking about like. How can I get over this notion that I want to punish someone for not giving me a job yeah. and like nursing that fantasy of like, you just wait one of these days, you're going to want to come and get a job from me. Yeah. And ha, ha, ha. Yeah. So, so one thing like it, I think I do is think, um, like you said, look forward, be like, Hey, right. why aren't I imagining writing a good television show? Why am I imagining getting victory over somebody who didn't give me a job what yeah it, like that's the that sometimes people say the best revenge is living well right um right that sometimes thinking about like why don't i put my mind on something a little healthier and wouldn't that actually be a better use of my limited mental energy and that's that's one thing i think i think that <laughs> yeah. the reason that We're, seems hard is because it seems like you're just totally giving up on the satisfaction or the gratification you were going to get by having a little bit of revenge so there's intermediate not quite as morally praiseworthy as your suggestion which are kind of like unprincipled compromises like um so you can nurse the sort of anger or resentment for a long time under the maxim revenge is a dish best served cold so i'm going to wait you know i can just wait it out it may be that the longer you wait it out the less need you feel to take any revenge but you've got the gratification of nursing your resentment for a while you might also sort of have the compromise attitude of like i'm not going to take revenge on this person but you know do i owe this person a favor no I mean, I don't have to go out of my way to help them. I mean, I'm not saying this is altogether admirable, but it may be that these are just, like I say, kind of heuristic compromises. I didn't I didn't mean it to be too moral. No, because yeah. the fantasy that I have yeah. is just be like, I'm doing something which is so satisfying and great, and I love it so much. Yeah. That I don't even remember the fact that I was. That's slighted. exactly. That's what I was hoping my my strategy would be terminating in that, which is that the need for payback just dissipates. There was a shirt in Thailand. It was belonged to a dissident Buddhist group where they don't shave their eyebrows um, and they're vegetarians. <laughs> That's pretty radical. And yeah, and it and it said in English, it said, "Good to forgive, better to forget." Hmm. But then the actual trans, the actual statement in Thai was, "A man looks down on another man, and but the sky looks down on no one." Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, really interesting. Ah, that makes it sound like the sky is just indifferent, which I guess is like forgetting, right? It's a little bit like 
if you're as massive as the sky, yeah, you're going to feel pretty good and you're not going to feel bad that you didn't get that job in 1998. Yeah, I do think that there's something right about, I mean, one or another version of that idea, which is that you are better and you're bigger, bigger. for being able to forget this. Like, because the thing to remember about resentment, rancor, hanging on to sort of, you know, gnawing over these injuries or wrongs that you've suffered in the past is that it's one healthy attitude to have towards that is just to remember that it's small. Yeah. It's petty. It's, you know, you're better than that, right? Because I do think it, that's true. You um, don't want to turn into the underground man, you know, who's just no. like spends years chewing over some petty little insult that he suffered from some officer, you know, uh, that's yeah. just corrosive. and. Hopefully you can come to see that that makes you look really bad in your own eyes. Oh, I wouldn't say hopefully, hmm. because I do think there's a bit of wisdom from Aeschylus that we're missing, uh -huh. which is like, I think one of the characteristics of resentment is that it comes with it a feeling of shame that you're seldom like ready to get up there and be like, what did you do last night, Eric? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I thought about resentment all day. It was pretty fun. How about you? Did you play tennis? Instead, it just seems, seems like a shameful yes, thing yeah. that we yeah. we hate ourselves for. Yeah. And I think I think the sort of wisdom of Aeschylus, where the, um, the Furies are transmogrified into the kindly ones, is that if you can say, yeah, you know, at that point in my career, I was pretty frightened. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if I was going to get another job in TV mm -hmm. or if I was going to have to go back to Brooklyn and be a failure yes. and live in my mom's house, right. my parents' house. So therefore, I was feeling very vulnerable. Right. And this resentment was an expression of that vulnerability. And, right. and that's okay. So it's sort of like self-forgiveness as one of the elements of, of forgiveness of others. That it's like, of course I was terrified. Right, right. Of course I really wanted that thing to happen. And of course, when it didn't happen, I felt super, super afraid of what would happen next. So I concocted a way of looking at the world and my life and this other person who yeah. supposedly wronged me that would make me feel more safe. That's so right. it's almost like if I can take my impulses and enshrine them in a way that they feel safe. They're not in charge, but they're safe. Yeah. Then um, this is kind of an internal family systems approach. Interesting. Uh, but um, yeah, I might I might feel better. I might be less consumed by resentment. That shamefulness comes from the fact that if you're really obsessed with this wrong or this injury and plotting your revenge or fantasizing about your revenge, you're kind of wallowing in your own humiliation. And I, yeah, and I think you seem to be a humiliated being. Yeah, and you're nursing that, or you're, and that's why you don't happily admit that I spent the whole evening fantasizing about some revenge for some petty insult um, in the past. And the Furies, in you're absolutely right about in the Aeschylus, it turns out the real source of their rage is that they're not getting any respect from the Olympian gods. They're underground, oh, they're female, they're despised, they're forgotten. The Furies are not in Homer at all. He mentions them maybe one time, oh. so it may well be that they were completely put aside in the culture, and Aeschylus is now recognizing them. And when Athena says, you will be worshipped, they say, oh, really? Because they have been humiliated and despised for so long that they're in exactly that same position. That's right. Yeah, so like I say, this is all easy to say, and then it's hard work to do and to apply, because um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get sucked into this impulse for retaliation, even if you don't side with the party that's advocating. You know, I have to confess, even you know, when somebody throws you some red meat, you kind of can easily go, yeah, yeah, let's wipe them out. So it's an instinct, but I completely agree that we're more complicated and better than just caving into that all the time. We have to begin to see it as backward-looking, small, and um, not worthy of us. We're better than... Well, and that. also dangerous... Of course. Like, like yeah. I do think when you, we talk about red meat, I think, what is it red meat for? Well, it's it's red meat for anger, but it's really red meat for fear. It's a way of saying, yeah. you felt really, really scared when that thing happened. Right. Like, I grew up in New York City in the 1970s, mm. and it was kind of dangerous. Yeah. And politicians could get a lot of um, traction by promising to uh, put criminals behind bars. Yeah. And somebody who, who, you know, went on to some uh, success as a reality television uh, host and a little bit less success in politics, Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> after the um, Central Park, I think they were five, oh, um, uh, yes. were accused of, of rape. Yep. Uh, he called for them in The New York Times to be executed, yep. despite the fact that we've later learned they were innocent. Yep. Um, Oh, and Donald Trump is a master of of, uh, of stoking resentment, stoking like resentment the and anger. Definition yeah. of a demagogue. He's a demagogue, and, exactly. Yeah. And what was I talking about? So, but that's appealing to people's fear, exactly. And yep. in a sense, you you need to sort of, you know, take a deep breath, get out of the fight or flight response, right? Exactly. And get in a situation of safety. And if you're in a situation of safety, or you can imagine that then you can see other solutions, you can be curious, you can enjoy your life a little bit. Yeah, and maybe you can have the courage to recognize that it might cost a lot to bring about the situation in which everybody is safe, the conditions in which people can actually build some real safety for themselves instead right. of just giving them the illusion of safety based on satisfying, gratifying this uh, fear and anger and stuff. So, yeah, I think there's this really tricky balance between recognizing that we can't just transform our nature so that we have just left all impulses of revenge and retaliation behind and evolved out of it, because I don't think that's going to happen, but that we can also see it as a semi-domesticated, semi-wild animal that we have to live with and control <laughs> and um, recognize that that's not all of us, that's not the whole yeah. of our soul, and think forward. Yeah, so on one side of Eurasia, you had um, Aeschylus, who was taking these rather frightening female deities and incorporating them into a um, a solar pantheon, a sort of heavenly yeah. pantheon. Right. Not incorporating them, but making some space for them yeah. after they had been repressed. Yeah. And on the other side of Eurasia, in India, we had uh, these sort of frightening female deities who seem to have been repressed in Vedic religion and then in Buddhism. Oh, really? And then in like the 7th or 8th centuries, there was this uh, development called Tantra, where they allowed those deities back in, hmm. and they said in the Buddhist context that rather than repressing what the Buddha called the poisons of anger, lust, and egoistic ignorance, we can kind of um, use them as medicine. Oh. We can kind of incorporate them into our practice and our lives. Interesting. Um, and I wonder if some good comparativist could draw some lines between those two developments on either side you say of Eurasia. Seventh and eighth centuries, common era. Yeah. You mean? Yeah, common era. Uh -huh. Yeah, it happened a little later. Yeah. It happened a little later. Actually, That's true. Interesting. I didn't know anything although, about although that. Although the texts, the texts surfaced from then. Maybe stuff was going on right. on the unrecorded level earlier. Who knows? Presumably, when these 
religions of uh, sky gods and goddesses came in, they didn't eradicate what was there before the Neolithic or earlier religions. Yeah. But they existed in some kind of tension. I wonder if these are like Jungian archetypes or something like that, that they're sort of baked into our nature so deeply that they crop up in different traditions. I don't know. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be cool to like grow a small colony of Homo sapiens on Mars. And not introduce them to any of our cultural uh, baggage and see do, if they came up with that. Let's finally yeah. do a controlled experiment. I think I think that would be the way to I answer so the too. Jung versus his critics question. Um, Excellent. Well, have we solved that problem? I, I think we've kicked the can down the road a little I bit. Think I'm so. happy. I would say so. Well, let's see. Okay. Anything else to say so, about that? Um, I think I don't think so. I think this is going to be a frightening fact of the human condition for more or less, you know for indefinitely forever maybe but that we've made a huge amount of progress already in you and me domesticating and taming these instincts and you you, you mean the human race or or taylor and eric uh, <laughs> taylor and eric representing the human race i do okay, think there yeah. has been pro like when i said before that i was having an argument with people about whether there's been progress i think there's no one answer to that question as it's posed so i think making the case that it's been overall progress is probably pretty hard but of course you can say there's been some progress, you know, in addition to there's regress and there's stasis and there's all kinds of things. So it's not as if there's zero progress, but I don't know if it's overall progress, but I think um, we're less just captive to our instincts than we were thousand years ago or 4,000 or whatever. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world is a lot more complicated now. So we've got more dangers, but more tools to deal with it. So yeah. it's a little bit of both. Yeah. No guts, no glory. So no cause for despair. Yeah. No, no. No, we can't afford the luxury of despair. Despair is not what we do on this podcast. Yeah. Despair is not an option. It's not our game. Okay, good. So um, yeah. so that was a good one. And uh, come back next week and and go to the webpage and send your questions exactly. if there is, in fact, a webpage. I think there is. I think so. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye, okay. everybody. Okay. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's edited by me, Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.